good evening everyone, welcome to our, our evening Dhamma session. We're um, looking tonight at the Mahagosinga Sutta. Majimanikaya 32. Now, a lot of the suttas, you, a lot of the talks the Buddha gave were in uh, well-known places, mostly Savati and Jetavana, where the Buddha spent most of his life. But from time to time he went traveling. I don't remember exactly when he spent his time in the Mahagosya Sutta. I don't even know where it is. Something to research. But um, it was a sala tree. Sala are these very tall trees that flower, and the flowers actually smell very bad, or very strong anyway. They have a very strong smell, and they rot. Or the fruit rots. But um, I suppose in some ways, in the sphere outside, it's not so bad. Certainly these enlightened beings wouldn't be disturbed by it, but the Buddha was there with many of his disciples. And um, so there was Sariputta, Moggallana, Mahakasapa, Anuruddha, Revata, and Ananda. And there were others as well. But um, it happened that Mahamoglana or Mahakasapa Mahamoglana went to see Kasapa and said, hey, let's go listen to Sariputta, let's go see Sariputta because Sariputta, if you don't know who he was he was the chief disciple of the Buddha the Buddha called him his uh, general of Dhamma or something it's uh, number one the guy who who uh, was sort of second in command or, or responsible for leading the Buddha's armies on his behalf as a general. And this is because he was his mind was was highly developed and so he was able to understand the Dhamman level that Nobody else besides the Buddha or another Buddha could. It was quite special. And so Mahamogalana said, Hey, let's let's go listen to him talk. And he took Mahagasapa and they started going and then Anandas uh oh and they took right. Hmm? We took Anuruddha as well. And then Ananda saw, saw them going and he said, Oh, I know where they're going. And he said to Rewata, Hey, Rewata, why don't you, why don't we go listen as well? And Rewata said, Okay, 
So they all got together and went to listen to Sariputta, see what Sariputta had to say. Because uh, Sariputta was very special. And uh, that's really what this sutta is about. It's about specialty. There's, um, we're going to go through and get a sense of each of these disciples. I'll try to give a little information about each of them. Anyway, um, we'll tell the story first. So then the story goes, they went to find Sariputta and when they got there, rather than, than teaching them anything, Sariputta asks Ananda. He sees, the, you know, they're sitting there, and then Ananda comes with Revata at the end, and he says, oh, Ananda, and Revata, come, come. He says to Ananda, he says, you know, we we're just saying how, be how, how delightful this place is. The salad trees are all in blossom and heavenly scents. I guess they smell okay when they're not rotten. Heavenly scents seem to be floating in the air. Uh, just a great, well, something about forests, you know. They're very comfortable for the human psyche. You know, we've only been, it's only been a very short time in our history of rebirth uh, compared to the long time we were living in the trees living in nature and that we've come out of nature and live in this so nature is still very familiar to us so it's very calming has a calming influence and so he said what kind of bhikkhu ananda so ananda what kind of bhikkhu what kind of meditator could what kind of practitioner could illuminate the gosinga sala tree wood Illuminate the Gosinga forest. What kind of person would you say would really shine? What sort of person would shine in this in this great forest? It's an interesting question. On the one hand, you want to ask, why is it important that we that we stand out, right? Is it important that we be somehow a special monk or a perfect monk? But on the other hand, the question really is, how do we how do we make use, and how and, and what is the best goal, the best type of person to aim for? No, I mean, I, 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 I talk about this because there is, it's an issue in, especially in modern times, or I guess always has been, of wanting to be special, on the question of being special. We're told on Facebook, I think, I don't use Facebook, but think we're told on Facebook that we're all special. I joke, but you know these, um, what is it, the 
modern self-help inspiration is we're all special we're all special the truth is none of us are really special <laughs> or or being special doesn't really mean anything it doesn't really matter if you're special it's um and the truth is that most of us are well we're all we're not all special the same some people are more special than others some of us are dumber than others it's a real blow to one's ego to find someone who's smarter than you right some of us are more beautiful than others physically attractive when we get acne and or if we have crooked teeth we're less special than those people it's true i think you know from a buddhist perspective it's good karma to have straight teeth probably probably means you had very uh, you had uh, very good speech in a past life and so we have all these insecure buddhists who feel themselves less special than other buddhists I have worse karma than all those other Buddhists who have straight teeth. There's some very beautiful Buddhists, and you think, wow, they must have been Buddhists in a past life and done some really wonderful things. And there's people who are famous, you know, there are famous Buddhists like the Dalai Lama, and I think, boy, uh, how can I get as famous as the Dalai Lama? No, I'm, I'm more special than a lot of people, because I have a YouTube channel. I've got like 50,000 subscribers. How many subscribers do you have? Most of you don't have 10 or 100. I'm more special. But the Dalai Lama is even more special because he's got... He must have many more followers. I don't know. Right. So, so we're unequal. And uh, this sort of modern way of dealing with this, coping with this, is really um, in, it's dishonest. It's dishonest in the same way as saying that all religions are alike. It's dishonest, but, you know, the reason for doing it is not out of a desire to deceive, it's out of a, I've talked about this before, it feels like an intellectual sort of laziness, or um, it's not laziness, but it's it's a coping mechanism. How do we cope in multi in pluralistic society? We, um, you know, if we're if we're honest, we'll say, yeah, I, I think your religion is crazy, and and, and but uh, but no problem, you know, to each their own kind of thing. Uh, but if we're if we're dishonest, we we because we hear this, we hear that all religions teach people basically the same things. We hear this in Buddhism. Well, you know, there's many different paths, but they all lead to the same goal. You know, it certainly would be nice if they all led to the same goal, but I think it's um, it's a cop out to say that because what does that mean? Just because you call it Buddhism, it leads to enlightenment. Um, this is what they tried to do in China, and they're still not very satisfied with how they did it. They tried to uh, say that everyone, everything is just for becoming a Buddha. Any good thing you do, it puts you on the path to become a Buddha. 
anyway, that's a not important argument. It's don't want to get too sidetracked. But when we talk about being being you know unequal, unequal, we say, well, we're all snowflakes and we're all special, you know, in our own way, which is really a load of rubbish because some of us are terrible people and most of us have terrible things in us, and that's not special. You're not special because you have a temper. You're not special because you're addicted to porn or, or computer games or food. It doesn't make you special. Uh, it doesn't make you special. It doesn't make you special because you have no interest in meditation or, or good things or because you're stingy or because you're this or that, right? You're not special, I mean, even even you're not special because your teeth are crooked. I would say, well, crooked teeth, it's not really an important thing, but you know, let's forget crooked teeth. You're not special because you have, you're nearsighted. You're, de you know, you're, you're deficient. I, I, I was nearsighted, so I, you know, my students fixed it for me. This idea of being special, it's important to talk about. And so, and 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 even in terms of of good practices, you know, not all good practices are equal. In Buddhism, there are many different practices. One of the good things about this sutta is it it answers sort of a, a vague question we have about what it means to be a Buddhist. I think in a really good way, because none of the answers to this question, who would shine in the Gosinga forest? None of the answers are wrong. They're all going to come up with their own answer. Ananda starts and then they go through it. And their answers are different. Their answers are different because they're different people. and They all have different interests in in the Buddhist teaching. Now I'm not sure if, if uh, these guys were all enlightened at this point. <coughs> I guess they must have been. I don't know what the timing would be, but... Yeah, most likely they were all enlightened, but they're still going to talk about things that are particular to them. And there are particular aspects of the Buddhist teaching that I think we all should pay attention to. It gives us a sense of, you know, here in the meditation course, we're obviously, I mean, be reassured, you're doing the most special thing right now. And the Buddha's going to, spoiler alert, the Buddha's going to... Uh, He's going to decide with you guys, but well, nonetheless, it gives us a sense of how to how to make a life out of this. You know, hey, I think this meditation and and a life that is in line with this idea of being mindful is a great idea. How do I do that? What are the various what are the different things that make up that sort of a life? So Ananda says. Well, you know, I, you know, you know, what sort of a person, a bhikkhu, a, a, a Buddhist. Let's use the word Buddhist to translate bhikkhu. A Buddhist who has learned much. Right, Ananda. This is no surprise. Ananda was was um, he memorized all of the Buddha's teachings. Anything he heard that the Buddha had said, he had people repeat it to him. And when the Buddha gave him a talk, and he came back. 
Buddha would repeat the talk for Ananda, and Ananda would memorize it. This is the truth what the tradition says. So he memorized all the Buddha's teachings. It's not, I mean, that's not in and of itself a hard thing to believe. People with very good memories even exist nowadays, more special than me. But uh, back then, for sure, people who could memorize huge tracts of texts and, and teachings, not hard to believe. Especially because they were teaching them, you know, this is what they were living, reciting them and talking about them, explaining them. So he says, uh, someone who's learned a, whole, learned a lot of the Buddha's teachings. Well, he learned beginning, the middle, and the end of the holy life, the right meaning and phrasing. Not just any teachings, also learn the important ones, the ones that teach the holy life, the life of purity, that teach the life, teach the way to uh, freedom and enlightenment. And this is important because you leave here as a meditator and people will ask you about what you've practice that most meditators leave kind of dumb they don't really we don't teach a lot and they go out and they well you know I walked and I sat what did you get well you know it's hard to describe what's it about you know you, you practice Buddhism what is Buddhism yeah something something for noble truths I don't know you don't get a lot of information you certainly don't get nearly enough to um to, to discuss, let alone teach, if you ever wanted to teach. This is why there's something called the Pacheka Buddha, a person who practices the Dhamma by themselves without a teacher, who, who sets out to become enlightened without a teacher and, and makes it. They become enlightened without a teacher, no Buddha to help them. But they're not advanced enough, you know, their minds are not uh, strong enough to understand completely what they've realized in, in the sense of being able to put it in a larger perspective. They've just come to the feeling nothing is worth clinging to, everything is, you know, uh, they let go of everything. But they can't teach it. And this is the way most of us are. It's like, well, Go to Canada if you want to learn. It'll teach you. Why? Because I've done a lot of study. You know, not just of the Dhamma, but I've gone through this sort of a course and and uh, you know, study these manuals with the guidance from teachers and so on and so on on how to teach. So, from Ananda's point of view, yes. There's lots of people who practice and become enlightened, and that's a wonderful, that's really the most important thing, but it's quite special in his mind. It's extra special to uh, be able to then teach it, or explain it, understand it, even beyond your own practice, to understand the practice of other people, because it's true that um, there are different paths in the sense that if someone is full of anger, well, they're going to come at it from a different perspective than you are. And 
maybe someone is very distracted and so they're going to have to deal with things in this way and so on. Different people have different so not practices but you know, different approaches to some extent. It's like if you're if a person is um, very cerebral and you want to teach them Chitta Nupasana and Dhamma Nupasana. If a person is very passionate, you want to teach them Kaya Nupasana and, and Vedana Nupasana, the four Satipatthana, right? Body, feelings, mind, Dhamma. Practice body and feelings if you're a very passionate sort of person. If you're a cerebral sort of person, you practice mind and Dhamma, that sort of thing. But a person who has studied all of the Dhamma, they can, they can uh, understand and relate and have a broader perspective. So don't think that just because we're meditating, some some people will say, "Oh no, don't have to study, just practice." But in the long term, that's not really true, and that's not really proper. It's not very beautiful. It's kind of like putting your head in the sand. And now, if you don't study, there's no problem, but to purposely avoid it or to shun it or to think that it's not beautiful is really wrong. You know, Ananda's not wrong here to think that there's something beautiful about a person who has taken the time to go beyond their own practice to really understand on a broader level you know, some piece of the Buddhist, of, of the Buddha's wisdom. But that's just Ananda. He's... Uh, you know, he's biased in that way, you could say. And so then uh, Sariputta says, okay, well, uh, what about you, Rivata? And Rivata says, well, yes, the Venerable Ananda has spoken according to his own inspiration. Which, he's not being snide, he's actually saying, yes, that's, I understand why you're saying that. Oh no, Sariputta says that. And then he says, uh, Rebata, what about you? Rebata says, well, I think a bhikkhu, a Buddhist who delights in solitary meditation and delights in... I'm repeating that. Delights in solitary meditation is devoted to internal serenity of mind, does not neglect meditation, possesses insight, and dwells in empty huts. Someone devoted to seclusion. Now, <clears throat> if you know anything about Rewata, Rewata was uh, Sariputta's nephew, actually. And uh, Sariputta uh, thought about his nephew and really had a sense that his nephew was sort of a spiritual person, I think. And he knew that his parents, Rewata's parents, would never let him become a monk because they were all wrong view. Probably Brahmins of some sort. I think they were Brahmins. And uh, so he said to the monks, he said, you know, if my nephew ever comes to ordain, you just ordain him without his parents' permission. He said, I'll be, I'm his parents. I'm his parents. What, are, what, what use are those people they have in the wrong view? It's an interesting story um, because there's a rule again. The Buddha laid down a rule against uh, ordaining. Uh, monks without uh, their parents' permission. But uh, Sariputta 
took charge and said I'll be his parents his uncle um, it's an interesting point but uh, Revata's parents were not to be denied when he was seven years old I think they uh, very young anyway 12 maybe I can't remember they found him a wife and they hooked them up and uh, they they got them married they, they had a marriage ceremony and so they're getting ready for the marriage ceremony and all the relatives come over and give them a blessing and they're saying may you live long and may you live may, may you be together um, until you're as old as your grandmother so old as uh, old as granny so and so and he says who's granny so and so and they point to this woman 120 years old and she's all wrinkled and stooped like this and Rivata looks up and he just has this you know flash he realizes what the heck am I doing I'm that's what I'm gonna know that's where I'm headed just this realization of old age sickness and death and and what a waste it was just he's he, these people are trying to trap me <laughs> and uh he ends up um, pretending that he has to use the to use the toilet, and he goes off to use a bush, and runs away, and becomes a monk. That's the story of Rewata. I can't remember what happens to his wife, but she may have gone forth as well. I don't know. But Rewata was known for his solitude. Rewata lived in the most remote inhospitable forest jungles you know there are jungles in india i don't think well in the mountains i suppose there are but in thailand there were some awful jungles i don't know if i ever some of you have told my story about how i i uh i got lost and uh trying to find my way back finally this hunter found me and he almost shot me and then he sent me down into a ravine and he said follow the ravine back and there was a trail through the ravine but I had no flashlight so I kept going off trail and the bottom of the ravine was full of thorns and uh, I spent weeks pulling those thorns out of my body it was uh, vicious they're thorns that are hooked you know they're hooked so uh, the further you, the more you pull the more they tear your skin it was quite awful uh, so Rivata lived in those sorts of places, just places where you know there was no one. What isn't wrong, you know? He had this idea to uh, be dedicated, devoted to seclusion. That was the sort of person he was. Now the Buddha praised seclusion, living alone, practicing meditation, attaining all sorts of high states of trance and. Um, concentration it's a very good thing very beautiful so all of you are engaged very much in seclusion I mean the, really the point is some people talk as Buddhists about being mindful in their ordinary life and just being generally mindful but you know the benefit of seclusion to really help you you know some people would say it's unnatural to go and sit alone in a room because and because it's not the way you normally live how are you going to learn about your life 
And to some extent that's true. You know, there's lots of sort of ways of dealing with society that you may not learn about. But at the end, what we're talking about is understanding the mechanics of reality. No matter where you go, uh, there's going to be mind, right? There's going to be experience. But it's kind of like saying, we'll just drive our car, and as it's driving, we'll open up the hood. You know, you get out, I'll keep driving, you get out and start tinkering at the engine, you know, make sure the engine's running. It doesn't really work that way. If you want to understand, if you want to study, if you want to fix, um, and, and it, it's a great analogy because the mind operates alone in seclusion. It operates very much in the same way as it operates in the world, um, except it's not engaged. And so it's, there's a certain amount of safety and uh, there's a certain amount of clarity in terms of the running of the mind. Right? When, you get, when you want something, you're sitting alone in your room and you want pizza, well, there's no pizza, and you can't go to Pizza Hut or Pizza Shop. And so you get to see not what it's like to eat pizza, but what it's like to want pizza. And and, and there's a very important difference, because you're with the actual experience, as opposed to the, the action, and of course then getting caught up in eating and, and, and getting lost in it. Uh, you get to see instead the... the the artificial nature of this habit. You know, this, as soon as I say the word pizza, your mouth starts to water. <laughs> I mean, you're sitting alone in your room thinking about it, and it's wow, this mind is a scary thing. It's very strong. Now, if you can just go after what you want, if you're engaged in the world, you may never see that. Because it's gone in a flash, and then you're onto something else. Oh, but anyway, that's what Rewata said. Sariputta said, yeah, well, that's what I expected from Rewata. What about you, Anuruddha? What sort of person do you think would shine? And uh, Anuruddha, Anuruddha is a story of the nutty cakes that many of you are familiar with. Anuruddha was spoiled as a child. He was never uh, he was never taught the word nut. He was never told nutty. Nutty means there are none. Because he made a wish in a past life to never hear that word again. He never he heard it so often. He'd go home and he'd say, "What's there to eat?" And they'd say, "Nutty. There's nothing." And he always dreaded. He always felt really poor and and low-hearted and low-spirited whenever there was nothing in the house to eat. And so he made a vow. He he, he did he he did some very good deed. And he said. May I never, through the, the greatness of this act, may I never hear this word again. And it worked And until his last life when he was Anuruddha and he never heard the word Nati. And then one day they ran out of cakes and his, his mother says, uh, Nati. And he says, well then give me, give me some of the Nati cakes. <laughs> That's fine. And his mother was, oh, he's never heard this word before. I've spoiled it. Anyway, it's a long story. He becomes a monk. I won't go into detail. Um, but he was a very, he was well. He says um, 
a Buddhist who can see who has clairvoyance. Some for some reason he focuses on clairvoyance, which I'm not going to pretend is is incredibly special. I mean, it, it certainly is special, special in the sense many people I think even don't believe it's possible. But this idea that you can see things far away. I mean, some meditators just by chance get this. They'll be sitting and suddenly their mind will leave their body or they'll see things far away. They'll have visions of things. A lot of meditators hear things. Like they'll be in Thailand and they'll hear chanting. And there's no chanting around, but they'll, be, their mind will go off to one of the nearby monasteries or something like that. You hear that a lot. This is because Anuruddha was, um, was a great uh, magic user. He had, he had a lot of magical powers. Source. His mind was, from, Buddha, from technical perspective, technical, in technical terms, we would say his mind was well developed in concentration. And he had the ability to take himself outside of what we understand of as physics. You know, physicists have real problem believing in things like uh, ESP or, or that sort of thing because there's no mechanism of physics. I mean, th th there's no... It's not possible from within physics, the, the, the laws of physics. But you know, the laws of physics are what we see the physical world working as. You know, we don't have any laws. Physicists have no laws or ways of explaining the mind. Neuroscientists don't either. There's no explanation of how the mind works. And so this whole other realm is just outside of you know, the realm of physics. And so anytime we say it's not possible for someone to levitate, that's not possible. When we talk about the laws of physics, we're only talking about what we observe in an ordinary situation with an ordinary really with an ordinary mind, which is the, the key. If your mind is well-developed, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if levitation certainly was possible, just through the power of one's mind. Anyway, not really important. Let's just sort of skip past that one. Not, I'm not going to suggest that you all try and develop these magic powers. Even though the Buddha... There's a sense, I think, that the Buddha praised them because of what they show. You know, they show the, the potential, the power of mental development, you know. Um, well, they certainly get people interested in meditation, which can be dangerous because people fixate on them. But beyond that, they show this, this whole realm of potential for development. And they set us up for the <coughs> potential to become enlightened because the same sorts of people will tell you that you can't get rid of anger, right? You can't be free from addiction. It's not possible. Um, and yet the power of the mind, you know, if you're able to you're able to read people's minds and see things far away and all sorts of crazy things with your mind, then, well, certainly it might be possible to become free from suffering, become free from craving. 
So he says, okay, I know Runda, that's what you, that's the sort of person you are. And he says, Mahakasapa, what about you? Mahakasapa is, he says, oh, well, I think a, a Buddhist who, who dwells in a forest, who lives in a forest themselves, you know, because most of these monks didn't normally live in forests, they lived in huts. Uh, this Buddhist lives in the forest, you know, not, not, not means lives in a hut in the forest, actually lives under a tree, you know, just goes into the forest. I've done this before. It's quite uh, liberating to just take a mat and say, yeah, this is where I'll be sitting, this is where I'll be sleeping. Lie down. In cold season in Thailand, it's quite easy because there's very few mosquitoes. In the other seasons, it's not so easy. You can, but you're better off with a net. A lot of monks use a net. And they consider that to be still living under a tree because the net's not for shelter, it's just for getting keeping the mosquitoes off you. And the rain, maybe. And uh, it's also someone who eats alms food, so doesn't take, uh, don't get caught up in living sort of luxurious life. They just go and eat charity. If people are giving out food, they would do this in India, then they would eat that. Whatever food there is, they eat, they, they wear whatever rags they can find. You know, so Buddhist monks in the time of the Buddha would just go and pick up discarded cloth and sew it together and make a robe dye it one ugly color and then wear that. And that was considered to be uh, a proper robe. Uh, they only had one set of robes, uh, a few wishes, content, and speaks in praise of contentment. Mahagasa has really uh, got a way of, you know, he's, he's got a, a real good point here. I mean, this, this Buddhist that he's talking about is some powerful Buddhist. Content and speaks in praise of contentment, secluded and speaks in praise of seclusion. Aloof from society and speaks in praise of aloofness from society. I think he's got the most eloquent answer. He's energetic himself and speaks in praise of arousing energy. Someone who is lazy. He's attained to virtue and speaks in praise of the attainment of virtue. He's attained to concentration and speaks in praise of attainment of concentration. He's attained to wisdom and speaks in praise of attainment to wisdom. He has attained to deliverance himself and speaks in praise of the attainment of deliverance. He has attained to the knowledge and vision of deliverance himself and speaks in praise of the attainment of knowledge and vision of deliverance. That kind of be that kind of Buddhist would shine. That kind of monk would shine in this forest. hard act to follow. He's really got it all wrapped up there. You know, someone who is secluded, someone who has committed themselves to you know, to living in a forest, is, you know, having nothing. It's really the ultimate. You go off and sit under a tree and, and not just because you've got a day off, but because this is where I'm living. And when I get hungry, I'm going to walk into the village and these people will see me and just, well, you know, they're giving out charity and so I'll have a little bit of food to eat. 
go back and sit under my tree. I find if my robes start to wear thin, I'll get some rags in the garbage. And uh, sew them up. And I'll be content and energetic and virtuous and so on and so on. <coughs> That's really a special sort of person. But Sariputta is still... He doesn't say yes or no. He says, well, it, it's understandable that you would say that. What about you, Mahamogalana? Mahamogalana was the... He had great magical powers as well, which is interesting how he's different from Anuruddha. Mogalana had different sorts of magical powers, but... That wasn't the greatest thing about Mogalana, I guess. Uh, and Mogalana doesn't even talk about that. He says... Uh, if you have a monk, two monks, he says, two Buddhists, who engage in a talk on the Abhidhamma. It's one of the few references in the text to the word Abhidhamma. We're studying the Abhidhamma. Some of you are, are familiar now with this term. And they question each other, and being questioned by the other, they answer without foundering, without 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 uncertainty. It means these people, these guys are sharp in their knowledge of the deep teachings of the Buddha. And their talk rolls on in accordance with the Dhamma. So he's talking about two monks. He's actually thinking, I suppose, of himself and Sariputta, because I guess they would sit around, and, well, not sit around, but they would spend time uh, talking deep Dhamma together. And uh, Mughalana thought this was a great aspect. I think it is a great aspect. Again, all of these, I think, give us some inspiration as to uh, what it means to be Buddhist and what Buddhism entails. Discussing the Dhamma, um, challenging each other, and answering questions. The Tibetans are big on this sort of debate and testing each other. And being able to answer questions on the Dhamma. You see a lot of suttas where, well, you see some suttas where monks would, be quest would question each other. This is one such sutta questioning each other, answering questions, keeping each other sharp. It's called Dhammasagacha. The Buddha said it's a great blessing. It, uh, it's different from different from teaching. You know, I'm teaching now and you all have no input into this. Now Sri Lankan audiences are, are my favorite because they'll actually ask questions. Some old Sri Lankan people, they'll just in the middle of my talk, they'll say, Venerable Sir. And then they'll answer, ask a question, just out of nowhere. How that happen? It's quite quite inspiring. But um, entirely they wouldn't dare to do that, which, you know, is another, it's not wrong. It actually is probably more correct not to interrupt the teacher with questions. Um, but there's another type of Dhamma teaching, which is, engaging in discussion you know and that's what we do in reporting so when people ask you know what is this reporting where you meet with a teacher one-on-one -on -one? some monks were critical of it saying that's not how buddhism works that's not the buddha never did that but that's called dhammasagacha it's asking questions of each other you know my asking you questions and you coming and asking me questions that's actually much more valuable in my mind or it's it's more important than these talks 
because it's very very direct not that these hawks are not valuable I hope they are in some way but without that we couldn't really have great progress so some centers I know I think it's a I think it's something that they should consider some centers in other traditions you'll go and they'll just say you know, go off and practice and every week you'll have a general talk on the Dhamma but you never get any advice, or you certainly don't get daily advice and, and direction for your practice. They so say, well, Moggallana, that's what you think. And they say, well, what about you, Sariputta? What do you think? Sariputta says, Sariputta again is the number one guy. He's really the most, the strongest strongest mind, I would say, of all Buddhists, apart from the Buddha. And he says, I think of, a, a, I think of a, a Buddhist, a practitioner who wields mastery over their mind. Does not let their mind wield mastery over them. It's an interesting, interesting way of putting it, because then you, immediately there's this flag, wait a minute. Didn't the Buddha teach non-self? Didn't he teach us not to be in control of our mind, not to try to control it? And what the Buddha taught is that the mind isn't under our control. That uh, that's not how the mind works. And so you're asking, well, how? Uh, then what the heck is he talking about? <coughs> uh, I mean, the way I it's it's not hard to understand if you're if you're charitable here that really what he's describing is this the, the this state of not not even just enlightenment but of having totally worked out work things out uh, so that your mind is orderly so that um, your intentions are um, fruitful and and the point is that doesn't come through control you can't just say uh, well I know I'm distracted but I'm going to be not distracted you know or okay now I'm going to sit down and my mind isn't going to wander I'm just going to experience this this or that I mean that's really the sense of, of what is meant by non-self. I mean, it's not the sort of thing that you can do. There's not a self that is in control. Um, it doesn't mean that there's not <coughs> uh, methods by which the mind changes. I mean, even those methods and those changes are not self. But there's a mastery. Mastery is very much a part of how the mind works. But it comes through training. I mean, obviously, if this is why people have such a problem with the idea of non-self, because they say, well, you know, in meditation, for example, we we train our minds. Well, then what's who's training? But but that's the point. You see, there's no abstract self. Um, I, I, the non-self thing is such a it should be such a non-issue, and we think too much. And the real problem is that uh, we're confusing two paradigms you know the paradigm of things i me and and a self these are just concepts 
They're entities, and those don't exist. The paradigm um, that the, the paradigm that we use in Buddhism is one of experience, and so it's not. It doesn't mean that you have to say, "Well, no, I can't control, so I might. I better not even try." The paradigm of experience is that there are um, there are impulses or or um, desires or, or whatever. There are motivations. There are um, methods by which mastery and by which habits are created. Good habits and bad habits. So what Sariputta is talking about is the accumulation or the development, which is totally possible, of good habits. I mean, it's obviously that's what we're doing here in as meditators. We're developing good habits, and that development is possible. It, 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 that is not what is meant by non-self. What is meant by non-self is that you can't say, "Oh no, no, no more anger. Turn it off," for example, or you can't say, "That's my anger." I mean, all these are, are wrong ways of looking at it. The whole concept of there being a self is just a just that. It's just a concept. I don't know, I mean, it's very hard to, you can't, the problem is people try to understand self intellectually, and it's a, it's a red herring because you're supposed to be looking, in Buddhism, the idea is to look at reality experientially. As you do that, you don't ever see a self, you don't ever see, I mean, obviously, it's nothing to do with experience, and that's how we should really understand non-self. So... You know, mastery here doesn't present a problem. I mean, certainly in terms of tranquility meditation, there are lots of masteries you can gain, magical powers. Um, and so I think the Sariputta is talking about that to some extent, but he's also just, I guess, talking about, or I would think talking about a, this sense of uh, cohesion, coherence, that really speaks to uh, what it means to be enlightened and why there's something wrong with not being enlightened. What's wrong with not being enlightened is that you're not getting what you want. Right? The problem with desire in general is it'll never be coherent. There'll never be I want this and I get what I want. Right? You know, not not consistently. It will never you will never get to the point where you can say that's that's true. Because the things that you're expecting to give you happiness are not giving you happiness. Those things you're expecting to give you your satisfaction are not satisfying. So it'll never be coherent. And um, this coherence where where you do say, I think now I'll enter into the fourth jhana, and then you enter the fourth jhana. Or I think you make a wish, now may I enter into cessation, nibbana, and you enter into cessation. That's uh, that's cohesion, coherence, consistency, internally consistent. And the only way you get that, the only way you get that is by overcoming desire, really, by 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 training. Either in samatha or in vipassana, in 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 tranquility meditation, or in the practice that leads to enlightenment. That's what Sariputta says, and they say, "Well then, let's go and see the Buddha." And they go and ask the Buddha, "What does he think?" 
I'll shorten this down. And the Buddha, they repeat everything, and the Buddha confirms basically what I said. Yes, yes. It's because you're that type of person. That's that's right. That's. And he said, all of you have well spoken well. The Sarah Buddha says, which one of us has spoken well? And the Buddha says, you've all spoken well in your own way. And the Buddha says, and and ba and he said he basically he implies that all any of those types of monks, of Buddhists, of practitioners would shine in forest. Uh, but he says, hear from me also what kind of a bhikkhu would eliminate, would, would shine in this forest. And he says, here, here Sariputta, a bhikkhu has returned from his alms road after his meal, after their meal, sits down, folds their legs, sets their body erect, and setting mindfulness, bringing mindfulness to the fore, resolves, I shall not break this sitting position until through not clinging, my mind is liberated from defilement. That kind of monk would shine. Someone who made a resolve, It's funny because, you know, anyone could make such a resolve, but someone who, let's say, makes a successful resolve or an, 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 an sincere resolve, like 100% dead set, I'm not going to get up from here until I become enlightened. Remember I said that, that sort of a person would shine. And... Um, I think really gives us a sense of what is the most special sort of Buddhist. Uh, it may very well be that none of us ever do that, right? Where we're so determined that come hell or high water, I'm not going to get up. Might not even be the best way to practice, but it certainly is impressive. But I thought, well, such a person would be very impressive. And I think I think I'd want to qualify it as you know someone who's ready and and pretty clear that uh, their mind is in a good place. I mean, this is the sort of thing we would expect here as meditators. When you get to the end of your course and your mind is so clear, we don't we don't make such a determination. But that's sort of you know it it, it becomes very similar where your intention is. You know where you're headed. You have no doubt about the way, and uh, you have no uncertainty about reality. And all of this is about refining and refining. And you're just going to get there. You, know, you may not sit for hours and hours on end, but you're constantly walking, sitting, and then practicing mindfulness throughout the day without break. That's where you shine. And I, I'm, I think, of course, the other thing with what the Buddha says here is that uh, we should never be sidetracked. Um, I think with all of this, it's useful to point out that this doesn't mean that any sort of practice will shine. 
right? It doesn't mean that just because there's alternatives means any alternative works. It doesn't even mean that all the alternatives are, are equal. I mean, certainly if it's if it's just about studying, the Buddha was very critical of someone who just studies or just practices magical powers or just talks about the Dhamma. And so I think we have to take special account of what the Buddha himself said and, and be clear that you know, this is what is most special about Buddhism. It's the, the power, the potential to attain liberation and freedom from suffering, that we can train our minds to change our habits and to beyond changing our habits to to really break free from the the, the prison that you know, that we put ourselves in or you know, the darkness really it's like coming up for air for the first time it's really a profound experience the, the experience of enlightenment is you know, this Thing that we're striving for, which is so different from the state of the state of ordinary running around in circles trying to satisfy your cravings. So I hope that was interesting. Again, we're going in order, so going to be a little bit random, the sorts of things I talk about, but I think we're hitting upon the ones that are interesting, inspiring, and helpful for us as meditators. So, either way, that's the Dhamma for tonight. Um, the cameras got mixed up, and I thought, well, that's fine, because this, this uh, discourse is all about practitioners. So now all of you got on the big camera, you're all... YouTube stars now. You're all special. So you can look and you can see these are all ver four very different, five very different, Tim was hiding, five very different uh, practitioners. Well, in many ways very much the same, but it's, it shows how, you know, we are, we are not, uh, it's not a cookie cutter thing. Life is not we are all snowflakes. Just because you're a snowflake doesn't mean you're special, that's all. But uh, we are all, I mean, that's a big part of what this Uta is. There's many aspects of goodness, and thus many aspects of Buddhism. Uh, so when we talk about even meditation, there are different meditation practices. But in the end, there's no denying that there is one path. And really, if you're not mindful, if your path doesn't involve the practice of mindfulness, it's really hard either either from a textual point of view or from a practical point of view. It's hard to believe that you could possibly come even close to becoming enlightened. So, I mean, the great thing here is that we are dedicated to this practice you know, that we've We've been given, you know, that it's been taught, I think, quite rightly, how to practice 
in a way that uh, that leads us that leads us to to true freedom. So now I don't want you all to go and say I'm going to sit here until I become enlightened and then complain when you break your legs or <laughs> when you end up in a wheelchair or something. It's not really healthy to sit around all the time, so don't don't take too literally what the Buddha just said there. Walking, the Buddha did recommend walking meditation as well. So I think that quote has to be put in context. But you know, it's a very powerful image, right? Someone who says they're just going to sit there, and you know, in the end, who cares about your legs if you do end up in a wheelchair? At least you're enlightened. Like the story of um, this guy who wouldn't lie down, Chukupala, right? And he walked until he became blind, but at the moment he became blind, he also became an arahant. And it's like, Meh. so they called him the one who who protects his eyes, because he protects his dhamma eyes, his his spiritual eye of enlightenment. Anyway, don't take it too seriously, and don't try to be too special. You know, don't uh, don't think, don't be too egotistical. Some people are, some Buddhists are very egotistical and they think, well, I'm special. And that's, I think, what leads a lot of people to want to become Buddhas. It's not because they have some higher calling, but often it's just ego. Ah, well, I'm too good for this meditation crap. I'm going to become a Buddha. Don't think you're special. Better to realize you're not very special. I don't feel bad about it. We're all going to die. and You know. What does it really mean to be special? In the end, most important is to become enlightened. That's really all that's important. Okay, enough talking. That's over an hour. Thank you all for tuning in. Have a good night.